The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In these times of rapid change, chaos, and crisis... A new wave of legendary leaders is rising up to answer their higher calling. Many are not famous nor have followers, though some do. They are brave individuals like you, seeking your highest truth and committed to deep personal change. Welcome to Legendary Leaders Answering the Higher Calling with your host Maria Danley. Here is the innovative support you've been looking for to become the legendary leader you are destined to be. Now, here's Maria Danley. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, Answering the Higher Calling. I'm your host, Maria Danley, and thank you for being here and joining us today. We have a very exciting show today. We will be spending the whole hour with Bruce Lipton, Ph.D., who is one of the first scientists working in stem cell research. And his discoveries have revolutionized the way that we know that life works which as you will learn in, in the interview today, that we will have tremendous impact. He, this information that Bruce is sharing us to, with us today will have tremendous impact on the way that you view your life and the possibilities about how your future may unfold. I discovered Bruce Lipton back in 2008 when I was at the Academy of Intuition Medicine earning my master's certification as a medical intuitive. Part of our homework was to read The Biology of Belief, a book that Bruce had written, and I was riveted by what I was reading. He was giving me the science behind what I already knew intuitively, that each of us is responsible for our lives and our health, that we're not victims of our genetic inheritance. I was so thrilled to read the science of how cells behave and what all of that indicated about my future and the future for our planet that I, I, I just wanted to meet this man. <laughs> His, his science gives us the idea very clearly. It shows us. The science is behind the idea that we are not victims. We don't have to have victim mentality. But we can have positive excitement about personal responsibility and what that means. When Voice America asked me if I wanted to have this radio show, they told me that, I could, they, would, that they would help book guests for the show. And my producer asked me, he said, What is your dream list, Maria, of people that you would like to talk to? And my immediate response was, could I talk to Bruce Lipton? And when they said there was a strong possibility of that, I just decided to sign up and do this show. So he's had huge impact on me. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Let me tell you a little bit about Bruce. 
Bruce Lipton, PhD. He's a cell biologist and lecturer. He's an internationally recognized leader in the new biology. His pioneering research on cloned stem cell on cloned stem cells presaged, presaged the revolutionary field of epigenetics, the new science of how environment and perception controls genes. Bruce served on the faculty of the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and later performed groundbreaking research at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He is the best-selling author of The Biology of Belief, The Honeymoon Effect, and co-author with Steve Behrman of Spontaneous Evolution. In 2009, Bruce received the prestigious 2009 GOI or Goy Peace Award in Japan in honor of his scientific contribution to world harmony. For more information on Bruce, please go to www.brucelipton.com. Please welcome to Bruce. Here he is. <laughs> Hello. Maria, thank you so much for that very long <laughs> introduction, but I'm very happy to be here because we have so many wonderful things to talk about, and I deeply appreciate the opportunity to speak uh, with you and your audience because this is uh, a very uh, important time of evolutionary change, and uh, if you don't see what's going on, it looks kind of freaky out there, but if you see what's going on, uh, there's a great future in front of us. Oh, I love that. Tell me about your perceptions of this freaky time we're in and what's ahead. I mean, what is your perception of that? <laughs> well, basically, we have a vision of evolution from a Darwinian point of view that uh, that an organism has a, a random mutation. And if that's a good mutation, the organism will, you know, repopulate and, and produce more of those with the better genes. And if it's a bad mutation, then it will disappear as the organisms die out. And so we say, oh, well, that, that what's evolution? I say, well, it, who knows what's happening? <laughs> it could, whatever the random thing is tomorrow. But it turns out that's not a true vision of, uh, of evolution, that evolution is actually a plan uh, that involves increasing consciousness from the lowest organism to the highest organism. So the evolution we're facing is not a physiology, biology change to our human body. It's a change in the way that our consciousness is working and our interconnection uh, in the field of energy, uh, which is really what's tying us all together. So it's a completely different uh, perception. And as we face the world today and we look around, all the crises, everywhere there's a crisis in economics and uh, fuel and climate change and health care. And all of these are all showing up at once. And they, if you look at it from some points, like looking at here's a tree and here's a tree and here's a tree, they're all separate trees. If you pull back a little bit, then you'll start to recognize that all these trees create a forest, that all these crises are all interconnected. And the, the bottom line is very simple. It's that we are not sustainable because of human behavior. Humans are undermining the web of life, changing the ecosystem, throwing chemistry out into the water and into the land, and all these things that we've been doing for a long time, thinking, oh, that's a minor influence on the world. It turns out it's a major influence. And uh, we are facing now what is called the sixth mass extinction of life on this planet, five times in the history of this planet, life was thriving. And then something happened, and it disappeared. Uh, now, we attribute some of those uh, uh, extinctions to things like a comet hitting the Earth and, uh, you know, un just undermining the ecosystem. Uh, and what's interesting is that today, 
we're losing species of organisms faster than even in the previous five mass extinctions. But what's most important is science has recognized that the cause of today's mass extinction is, as I mentioned, human behavior. So if, if we start to recognize that we, as a, as a species, are altering the planet by the way we were living, then we are really given a choice. We can change the way we're living and hopefully see a much brighter future, which is what I anticipate. Or, as most people say, well, just enjoy it. It's on its way out, so enjoy what you can before it's over with. That's another perspective. And why I just wanted to bring it up is because when we look at the world and we see all these crises and we think, oh, my God, this thing is falling apart and people are nervous and scared about the future, I really want to emphasize this point very clearly, and that is this. The way we've been living is destructive to ourselves and the planet. To build a new future, the one that we can thrive into, means to really undo the foundation that we have because the foundation of our belief system and our cultures is what's creating the problem. You cannot build a sustainable future on the foundation we have now. And so there's only one recourse to our, our future survival, and that is breaking the system down and rebuilding it in a much more holistic and harmonious way. And as you look out at the world and you see it falling apart, well, you could look at it and get caught up in the falling apart and go, oh, my God, the sky's falling. Or you could, like myself, go, wow, this is great. <laughs> it's coming apart because that allows us yeah. to build the one that we can thrive into. And that's why I'm excited, even in the face of all the upheaval. It's like, yeah, these upheavals, uh, are, you know, it's basically, here's a simple thing. Crisis precipitates evolution. Meaning, when we hit a crisis, it means you can't keep doing what you've been doing. That's the cause of the crisis. So when you hit the crisis, the only way out is to do something different. And this is what um, the, the human species is being called upon to do, is change its way of life and its arrangement and relationship so that we can uh, thrive through this upheaval right now. Well, we have a. I'm, I'm excited that you're talking about this. Um, my audience has heard we, we had an interview with Barbara Marks Hubbard talking about something very similar, how evolution gets very creative when, when it gets in a tight box, so to speak, <laughs> and seeing the bigger perspective to have an evolutionary consciousness to look at it that way, that life always is going through some kind of cycles of generating a new reality, a maintaining phase, and then a destruction phase. And we're in that destruction phase right now. Something else is coming. And I like to liken it to that we're all in the birth canal, and it's, it's exactly. dark. You know, and, a, and, uh, uh, Maria, there's always a little thing about birth, and that is there's always some bloodshed at birth. <laughs> you know, it's not painless, uh, and there's a, a little upheaval at birth as a new organism is coming into the world. And what we're saying is, uh, you see, you, humans, when we see ourselves as individuals, I'm a human, you're a human, we're a whole bunch of collective individuals, that's an old way of vision, because evolution is starting to recognize that you're a cell, I'm a cell, we're all cells in the body of something larger that's forming a, a super organism that's called humanity. So all humans are not individual separate entities. All humans are part of a large multicellular super organism, and that's the evolution. We're moving away from a Darwinian point of view that focused on the individual survival of the fittest. You know, what about the others? That well, that's not covered in Darwinian theory. It's only talking about the one who survives, and, and this is really destructive because it's not the one that survives. It's the community that survives. And all of a sudden it says, oh, that's what we're evolving into is a global community. 
because we've been separated. We've been separated by cities, states, nations, and uh, and competing with each other uh, on a on a global garden. When we have to recognize this competition is leading to destruction. It's cooperation that is the foundation of our evolution. So what we're seeing, interestingly enough, if you look globally, is a falling apart of, of political structures that have separated people. Now, it's in a state of looking like a bit of chaos, but that's, of course, when you're coming out of a highly structured system, you have to lose the structure until you can build a new structure. So we're in the midst of recognizing the old structure, not sustainable, a new structure is forming, and, uh, and this could lead us from where we are today on the threat of our extinction into a completely new world, like Barbara Marks Hubbard uh, has been talking about, because we basically we agree on the same story, and we know the destination. Yeah, yeah. Well, for those of you out there, I, I've, I really highly recommend reading The Biology of Belief, but I, I actually recommend listening to your audible recording more. Um, I was on a long road trip by myself going somewhere, and I, I could not stop listening to this book. Bruce, the way you tell the history, right in the very opening, the history of, of well, let's say the science and our perceptions through science and how it all evolved was, was absolutely riveting, better than a miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very personal as well, so it's not like we're reading about other people know we're reading about ourselves uh, and this takes it home uh, and you know and it's basically as the whole story really goes around is that we have over years since science started to uh, become our truth provider meaning when civilizations change we, we get new truth providers the previous civilization was called judeo-christian monotheism and that's when uh, the the idea of a, a single god and all that started to come across the world and uh, Judaism and Christianity was spreading and collectively bringing people to the one God story and all that. Uh, when that period was going on, uh, it, when you had a question about life, you would go to the church and ask the guy in the black coat <laughs> your questions, whether uh, it's a spiritual question or a health question or any kind of question, because the church was where we got our truth from. After Charles Darwin the civilization changed because we're no longer really bound to the monotheistic approach. We're really bound into a, a materialistic science approach, meaning that today when we want to find out the truth, we don't go to the guy in the black coat. We, we go to the guy in the white coat, <laughs> the scientist. Uh, and so, again, questions about anything from our psychology to our health to our world evolution, when we want to know the truth, we, we, we go ask science. And science has, uh, unfortunately... Uh, it helped us quite a lot, but it, it's taken us to a dead end because what's the story of science? Oh, you're a genetic automaton. Your life is in some major way determined by the genes that you have. Uh, that, as far as we know, you didn't pick these genes. And if you don't like your genetic traits, well, you can't change these genes. And all of a sudden you say, wait a minute, my life is controlled by these genetic elements. I didn't pick them. I can't change them. I am a victim of my heredity. Oh my God, there's like Alzheimer's in my family. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get Alzheimer's. There's cancer. Oh my God, I'm going to get cancer. Because we have a belief that the genes uh, are providing for these fates. That's the old science, and that's why there's a revolution now, because our belief in genetic determinism, which is what almost everybody out there has learned, genetic determinism, the simple belief that genes determine your life, uh, really is causing us to be victims of our heredity, uh, 
Meaning, as I said, if you have a disease running in your family and you blame it on genes, then you say, oh, my God, I, I could be the recipient of those genes and I'm going to get it. Uh, and and that, that takes power away from us because I'm saying, well, you have no power over these genes. That's what we teach people. We teach people that genes turn on and off, and in the process, they control our fate. Well, <laughs> this is the exciting part for me, because my research uh, back, uh, oh my God, 48 years ago uh, on stem cells, and, and I was doing research, I looked, there were only a handful of us in the entire world that even knew what the heck a stem cell was 48 years ago, so I, I happened to be a, uh, a lucky guy being in the right place at the right time to have uh, been cloning stem cells, uh, taking a single stem cell and then controlling, uh, you know, its development and fate. Uh, uh, and, and I've been doing that for so many years. Uh, while the rest of my colleagues were saying genes were controlling life, my research revealed a completely different understanding. Uh, and uh, let me just, uh, uh, just say how simple the research is and how pr- anybody can understand it. It's like uh, I was working with stem cells, so let's say what a stem cell is first. A stem cell is an embryonic cell. But since you're born, I can't call it an embryonic cell because you're not an embryo anymore because now you're born and you're, you know, a child. And at this point, it's like, well, I changed the name. It was called embryonic cell. Here's the point. A minute before you're born, I do a tissue biopsy, do a section of it, look in the microscope and say, oh, my God, there's an embryonic cell. I do the same biopsy a minute after you're born, find the same cell, but now I don't call it embryonic cell. Now I call it a stem cell. And so basically my point is a stem cell is a multipotential embryonic cell that's in your body, large numbers. And say, why should I have embryonic cells? I'm growing up. I'm an adult. And the answer is profoundly simple, and that is every day we lose hundreds of billions, not millions, hundreds of billions of cells die every day from normal aging and attrition. I said, well, if hundreds of billions of cells are dying every day, then how can I sustain my life? Because after a certain number of days, obviously, I'm going to be in quite a large deficit. Uh, And the interesting answer is, oh, no, you have stem cells. And as the other cells are dying, the stem cells are replacing them. So you stay, you know, you keep your biology uh, moving because you have a replacement for all these cells. So here's my simple experiment, and we'll get right to the point. Sorry for both, but I need to get this out if it's okay, Maria. Oh, yes, fascinating. Go ahead. Uh, I put one of these embryonic multipotential cells in a Petri dish, and that's called cloning. I only put one cell in the dish, and it divides every 10 or 12 hours. So I have one, and then two, four, eight, 16. The population doubles every 10 hours, and about a week later, I've got like 50,000 cells in the Petri dish. But here's the most remarkable point. All 50,000 cells came from one cell. The point is they're genetically identical. I have 50,000 genetically identical cells. Uh, they all have the same parent. And I go, here's where the experiment is that changed my world and led into the new world that we're experiencing today in science, and that was this. I have these genetically identical cells, and I split this population of 50,000 cells and put them into three different Petri dishes, split them up. But I changed the culture medium composition, the chemistry of the culture medium, a little bit in each of the three dishes so they don't have the exact same culture medium. In one dish, the cells form muscle In a second dish, the cells form bone. And in a third dish, the cells form fat cells. Well, now you're left with, you know, the most important and profound question, what controls the fate of your cells? You say, well, genetics. And I go, no, wait. All the cells were genetically identical in all three dishes, so it wasn't the genes that determined what the fate was. 
What determined the fate was the chemical composition of the culture medium. And you go, okay, so that's a nice study with cells in a plastic petri dish. And I go, okay, now let's extend it one big step, and that is this. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, see ourselves, we, we look, I see a single individual. Maria, you look in the mirror, you're looking back at you, is Maria a single living human organism? And I go, that to some degree is a misperception for this reason. We are not a single living organism <laughs> by actual definition. We are comprised of about 50 trillion amoeba-like cells. And I go, why is it relevant? And I say, because the cells are the living entity. And you say, what about Maria? What about Bruce? I go, oh, actual definition? Maria or Bruce represent a community of 50 trillion citizens. And the cells are the living entity. So here's the jokey part, and that is you look at yourself as a single entity, and I go, no, no, you are a skin-covered Petri dish with 50 trillion cells inside. Uh, and I go, uh, and the point about it is this, you have culture medium, because when I make culture medium in a lab, w- what's the basis of my chemistry? What, how do I know make, how to make a culture medium? I go, when we make culture medium in a laboratory, we try to match the composition of the blood from the organism where we got the cells. So if I'm growing mouse cells, I try to make culture medium that has chemical composition similar to mouse blood. If I'm growing chicken cells, then I look at the chemical composition of chicken blood and try to make medium because I'm trying to grow the cells in the same environment. So now we're down to a very interesting, I'm getting to the final point, and that is this. The fate of a cell is determined by the culture medium. In a plastic dish, I make synthetic culture medium. In your body, a skin-covered Petri dish, you make culture medium called blood. It doesn't make a difference if the cell's in the plastic dish or the skin dish. It still responds to the composition of the culture medium. In my plastic dish, I make the composition in the lab. But in your body, in your skin-covered dish, your culture medium is called blood. And the chemistry of that blood is controlled by the brain. The brain releases the hormones that regulate all the activities of the cells. So as the brain releases chemistry and changes the culture medium, that chemistry in the blood affects the genetics and the behavior of the cell. Now we're down to the last final piece, and that is, well, what chemistry should the brain put into the blood? And I go, ah, it's based on your perception. Simple. You open your eyes. You see someone you love. Your mind interprets that vision as love. I say, well, what's the result of a brain that experiences love? I go, oh, it releases some wonderful chemistry in love. Uh, It releases uh, dopamine, pleasure. Oh, yeah, when you fall in love, how much pleasure you feel in your body because the growth medium has dopamine. I say, what else? It's, oh, it puts vasopressin in your blood. I go, what's that? Oh, that makes you more attractive. Oh, so when you fall in love, the chemistry of the blood is enhancing your genetic of attractiveness. And I go, what else? Oh, oxytocin is released by the brain in love because that bonds you to the source of that love, your partner. And then lastly, and most importantly in this discussion, when you perceive love, your brain releases something called growth hormone. Well, growth hormone enhances the growth of the cells. So I say then, what happens to the chemistry of the blood, the culture medium, when a person is experiencing love? And I say, the chemicals that are added dopamine, vasopressin, oxytocin, growth hormone, enhance the growth of the cells. If I put in a plastic Petri dish, those chemicals of love, my cells grow beautifully. Or in your skin-covered dish, when you fall in love, what do people say? Oh, you're glowing. 
you're so healthy looking, you're so vibrant looking. I go, how did that happen? The chemistry of that blood infused with the chemicals from the brain of love enhanced growth. And I go, wait, same person opens their eyes and sees something that scares them. Well, you're not going to release the chemistry of love. You're going to start to release stress hormones, inflammatory agents. And I go, why are you doing that? Because the body is shifting from growth into protection. And therefore, the chemistry that goes in the growth medium, uh, the blood, isn't supporting growth. It's actually shutting down growth as you get ready to remember uh, fear is fight or flight. You're getting ready to run. So you're using all your energy to escape your threat. You're not using your energy to grow and maintain your body. So when I take the chemicals from a mind that's living in fear, the stress hormones, the inflammatory agents, put them in a culture medium, my cells stop growing. And hence the, the long-heard phrase, fear kills. It does. Fear chemistry shuts down the growth of the body as you're preparing to escape. So why is this relevant? And the answer was, the genetics and behavior of my cells are connected to my blood, the culture medium, the chemistry, and the chemistry is controlled by the brain. Yeah, I go and I say, yeah, but what chemistry should the brain release? And all of a sudden I go, is what the mind perceives. And all of a sudden it says, oh, my God, how you see the world changes the composition of your culture medium blood, which in a sense then controls your genetics. So the bottom line is this. We have looked at illness and disease on this planet for years from a perspective of genetics and said that our, our health failures are due to a failure of our biology, our chemistry, and our genes. And we've left out the mind all this time. Yeah. Now we're beginning to find out in the new science, which is not genetics. See, we all got programmed with genetics, the belief that genes control our biology. The new science, which part of the work of my pioneering work was involved with this, is called epigenetics. You go, well, it sounds like genetics. I go, no, it's a revolution. It's a complete change of planetary perception for this regard. As I mentioned, the belief behind genetics is genes control your life. You're a victim of your heredity. The new science is called epigenetics, and I said it sounds the same except for that epi. Epi means above. So when I say epigenetic control, I'm literally saying control above the genes. And all of a sudden I say, well, what does that mean? It says, well, your environment that you live in and the perception of the environment that you live in is what controls your genes. I say, well, what's relevant? I said, well, look, you're the one that can change the environment. You're the one that can change your perception. And all of a sudden I say, well, then your fate is controlled on the perception environment and you're the one that can regulate that? Then guess what? We're not victims of our heredity. We are masters of our biology. We just have to control our beliefs and our perceptions because when we change those, we change our lives. And then people say, you mean your belief controls your biology? I go, look, for 100 years, people have mentioned the word the placebo effect. I say, what's the placebo effect? I say, I give you a pill, tell you that this is the most advanced, extraordinary pill and it's going to heal you from your disease. You take the pill, you get better. And then I come back and tell you, well, I'm sorry, that was just a sugar pill. And you go, wow. But I say, well, then what healed you? Well, not the sugar. 
It was your belief in the pill that healed you. And everybody goes, oh, yes, a positive belief about healing can manifest healing. I go, yeah, what do you think we're talking about? Your belief created the chemistry of healing, not the pill. And everybody goes, oh, wow, my thoughts are, are healing me. And I also then have to, and then I'm going to get to the point here. <laughs> and then I'm going to say, well, when we talk about placebo, of course, that's always the positive belief that leads to a positive response. And then I say, does a negative belief have any power? And here's the point. A negative belief is equally powerful to a positive belief in influencing our health, but a negative belief takes us toward death and illness, and a positive belief takes us toward health and wellness. And we never talk about, what about your negative beliefs? So nobody talks about them, and I'm going, holy Jesus, we've got a problem here. Your negative beliefs are creating a chemistry that's a negative chemistry that shuts down your growth and your health. And it's, it's as powerful as a placebo, but in the opposite direction. And nobody ever talks about negative beliefs and, except psychologists. And they'll tell us that 70% of our self-talk in our head is negative, disempowering, self-sabotaging, and limiting. And all of a sudden it says, oh, my God, we've been programmed to believe that my fate was controlled by these genes. Now I find out it's controlled by my mind and that my mind is 70% taking me away from my destination. And all of a sudden the key to life is understanding how your thoughts are translated into chemistry and how that chemistry is translated into genetic control and behavior. And then we can leave behind the concept of victim and take our rightful place as creators of our personal lives and our collective lives on this planet. Yes. That was, long. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> a long, short answer. All right. Yeah, yeah, it, yes, well, it is a, it's a long answer, but it has a lot of answers in it. Um, but there are a couple of things that you, you, you make me think about. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, Bruce, was having to do uh, more around the way we inherit the, the beliefs of our parents. Um, it, the whole point of this show, Legendary Leaders, Answering the Higher Calling, what I'm trying to do here is help all of those unsung heroes, those people out there who are doing their deep inner work, that are doing their EFT and NET, and Psych K and all these things to reprogram their brains. Maybe many of them out there don't even know those terms. They're, they're meditating. But they know inside. They have a calling. They're pioneers. They want, they're, they're, they're being called to evolve and they are evolving. And I wanted to create this show to help them to get free of the programming they picked up by their parents and at the same time get them in touch with their higher calling so that they can be part of this evolutionary change, which we all are part of it. We can't help that's, that. And of course, that's a great mission. absolutely but when I read your book and especially around the area of oh my gosh you mean all of my mother's and my mother's beliefs and her feelings and her rage and her uh, dysfunction all of that was coming right into the placebo that we are pre-programmed and then we're in this dream state hypnotic state to about age six um, where it's just utterly fascinating that that what we know now about the baby and in utero and childhood of how we're just sponges picking up everything around us can you talk a bit more about that and really what you're finding even today, some of the answers to reprogram the subconscious. Yeah, well, okay, now here's the, here's the issue. The first thing is this, there's a broad statement, the mind controls our life, our fate, our biology. And I'd be okay, I can get that placebo, nocebo, all that kind of stuff. And I go, wait, wait, wait. Next definition, most important, there are two minds. There's the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. 
They are not one and the same, which has been a mistake over our history of considering, oh, the mind, <laughs> that they're both connected, and they're both, you know, like if, if I change my conscious mind, my subconscious mind should follow along. Uh, and so we try and we go out and we educate our conscious minds, and then we find our lives don't really change. They're still the same, even though our conscious mind now is super educated. And that's because we have to recognize this. The minds are two separate but interdependent elements, meaning the conscious mind is not the subconscious mind. Uh, it works with the subconscious mind, but here's the point. The conscious and subconscious minds uh, have different functions, number one. And number two, and very critical, which we'll get into, is that they learn in different ways. That's been the problem, because we've always been walking away with the belief, well, if my conscious mind becomes aware of this, then, of course, my behavior will shift toward my new beliefs. And I go, ah, big mistake. That's where the problem comes from. So let's talk about why we have two minds. And the first part is this. Uh, I'm going to make an analogy here for a second. I'm going to talk about an iPod, that little device that plays all that music and stuff like that. Now, um, uh, when you go to the store and you go to the Apple store and you buy an iPod and it comes out of the box and there's the old version that had a little wheel on the front they call the click wheel. Uh, and the new version is like a touch screen, okay? And I go, well, what's relevant? I say, well, the click wheel or the touch screen of the, of the iPod is like the creative mind. Why? Because now I can create a playlist. I can select which music I want to play. I can adjust the volume. I can adjust the EQ. I could fast forward, reverse, repeat. I, I, can, I can create a playlist that's creating. So I say, okay, you get a brand new iPod out of the store. You open the box. You take it out, and I say, push play. And nothing happens. <laughs> and everybody looks at you, of course nothing happens. You didn't download any program, so how can you play something? And I go, ah, take that story and recognize this. Imagine a baby could speak the moment it's born. Just imagine. And so the baby's coming out of the birth canal, and everybody is around celebrating, oh, the baby, welcome to the world. And the baby's looking up like in total surprise what's going on. And then somebody asks the baby and says, listen, tell us something. And, and the baby will look up and go, I don't know anything. I just got here. I go, what's the relevance? And it says, you can't think about something if you don't have anything to think about. How do you think about something? Well, first you have to have an idea, but you have to have some vision. So here's the point. A baby's mind is like an iPod. The conscious mind is like the click wheel or the touchscreen. Yeah, I can be creative with that mind. But if I don't have any data to work with, then I can't be conscious. I can't be creative. There's no, I can't play music in my iPod unless I've already downloaded music. Point. If you want to be conscious, you have to have data to be conscious about. Since a child is born without data about living in the social structure of the world, how to be a member of a family, how to be a successful member of a community and a culture, a baby doesn't have any rules. It doesn't have any idea about that. It's just come in blank slate. It's like the iPod just bought. So I say, ah, the first six now to seven years, we are six to seven years of a child's life, the first six to seven years, the EEG of the brain activity, the function of the brain, is not functioning at a level of consciousness, which is a vibration called alpha, which is calm consciousness, and beta, which is focused like schoolroom consciousness. A child's brain's not focusing at consciousness consciousness at that point. The reason is this. The first six or seven years, the child's brain is in a lower vibration called theta, which is hypnosis. And I say, well, why is that relevant? Because in order to download the programs of how to be a, a member of a family and a member of a community, 
The child can't create and manifest, oh, let me create an idea of how to do this. The child records other people's behavior, the mother, the father, the siblings, the community around. And how do, you, how do they record? And I go, oh, their brain is in theta. They're like a walking video camera. Everything they see and observe is downloaded, as the, just as you were downloading a program into an iPod. There are good programs that get downloaded. There are bad programs that get downloaded. The issue is this. The child is not filtering the programs. The child has no consciousness about the programs at all. They're bypassing consciousness. They're going down in hypnosis into the subconscious. So here's the point. The first seven years of your life, you learn the fundamental behaviors of how to be a member of a family and a society. How do you learn it? Not through school books, not through education. You learn it by simply observing other people's behavior and downloading it. And then all of a sudden I say, oh, my God, why is that relevant? Because the behaviors that we got downloaded with were not necessarily any behaviors that support our wishes, our desires, our aspirations for life. There are other people's behaviors. And if they don't have good behavior, then we are programmed with bad behavior. So now here's the point. First seven years, I'm downloading data, and then about seven is when consciousness kicks in. With consciousness, I can use the data to program my life. And as your show is very critical and very uh, importantly involved with, when we become aware we can even change the programs that we got originally, especially if they're not supporting who we are. So now here's the point. Okay, a child is reaching seven, is becoming conscious. And they say, well, the conscious mind is the creative mind. That's its function, creativity. Uh, subconscious is reflexive, reactive, stimulus, response. Push the button, make the behavior. Push the button. No, no creativity. It's just habit. So conscious mind, creative. Subconscious mind's habitual. You got a program, you're going to play that program just that same way forever and ever until you change the program. Conscious mind, oh, today I do it this way, tomorrow I do it that way. I can change. But here's the issue the conscious mind being creative has your wishes, your desires, and what you want from your life. The subconscious mind just has programs in it, not of your selection but downloaded from observing other people. You go, okay, well, good. I'm not going to use my subconscious mind. I'm going to create my life with my wishes and desires. I wish to be healthy, happy, have a great job, have a great relationship, all these wonderful things that we wish for. Now the monkey wrench. And the monkey wrench is science has revealed that we only use the conscious creative mind with our personal wishes and desires about 5% of the time. I said, what do you mean? Why aren't we using this all day? And the answer is this. A little thing that the conscious creative mind character has that's so important, and that is the conscious mind could think. I go, what does it mean? I said, well, when you're thinking, you're directing the conscious mind inside your head to thought-making. So, you know, if I ask you right now, Maria, I say, hey, Maria, tell me what you're doing on uh, Monday afternoon at 4. If you actually seriously entertain my question, what does that mean? You have to go into your head. You have to, you know, create a little calendar in your head and try to figure out what's happening at Monday. What am I doing around 4 o'clock on Monday? And I go, what? what's going on? I say, you're in your head. You're thinking. I go, ah. Then at that moment that you take your attention away from the world and go into your head to think, then you're not paying attention. I go, right. So does that mean whatever you're doing, when you have a thought, you stop? Like if you're walking down the street, you have a thought, all of a sudden you freeze? Well, your conscious mind is busy thinking, and then when you finish the thought, you start walking again. No, 
You're walking down the street, you have a thought, you're still walking down the street. I go, yeah, but now your conscious mind's not paying attention to the walking because it's in your database looking for what you're doing on Monday. I go, well, then who's, who's running the walking? How come you didn't hit a, a tree or, you know, fall off the edge of the curb or something when you were walking? I go, ah, oh, this is the critical point. Ready? Here it is. When the conscious mind is busy thinking, behavior is controlled by default by the subconscious programming. Yeah, walking is a subconscious programming. Once you learned it, now it's a habit. You don't have to think about it. Driving a car. Once you learn how to drive a car, it's a habit program. So you could drive the car, have a thought. And while you're having a thought, you're not paying attention, but the car is still being driven. Why? Well, your subconscious is a million times more powerful, a computer, than the conscious anyway. It can surely handle a car. So here's the idea, and this is it. I'm sorry I'm taking so long, but I need to get it out, and that is the moment your conscious mind is thinking it's not paying attention, that's when you start to play the behavior from the subconscious, which is default behavior, but then recognizing that the behavioral programs of subconscious primarily came from other people. So those behaviors do not necessarily support your wishes, desires, and aspirations. And you say, yeah, but if my behavior was conflicting with what I want, I'd be aware of it. And I go, aha, this is the problem. And I, in my lectures, I give a story, and they all laugh because they personally recognize it. And I go, it's a story about Bill. And I go, what is it? And I say, go back to your life. You must have had a friend and known your friend's behavior very, very well in growing up. And you happen to know your friend's parent. And one day you see that your friend has the exact same kind of behavior as their parent, and you get so excited by making that connection, so you want to tell Bill, and you go, hey, Bill, you're just like your dad. And then you back away from Bill, because Bill's the first person to go ballistic. How can you compare me to my dad? Uh, because it's like a total shock that you can say that Bill's behavior and his dad are the same. Bill is totally shocked. Well, what's the point? The point is this. Everybody else can see that Bill's behavior is like his dad. The only one who doesn't see it is Bill. I go, well, how does that make any sense? And I go, because when Bill is thinking and defaulting to the subconscious, the behavior that he's playing is the behavior that he downloaded from his father. Yeah, but here's the point. Because Bill's in his head thinking, he's not observing the behavior that he's playing because he's thinking. Conscious mind's busy. And I say, why is that relevant? Because 95% of our life comes from the programs. And psychologists will tell you that the developmental programs, 70% of those or more, are negative, disempowering, self-sabotaging, and limiting. And I say, well, what happens when you're playing these programs? You're the one that doesn't see it. And that means you could be shooting yourself in the foot all day long thinking you're moving out towards your destination, not realizing you're spending most 95% of the time in your head that your destination is actually the one of your program, which is not even one that has your wishes and desires on it. And self-sabotaging. You come home at night with a bloody foot and goes, who the heck has been shooting me in the foot? And the fact was, you were doing it yourself, but you didn't see it. And now, why is this relevant? Bottom, I keep saying the bottom line because I want to get there. <laughs> the bottom line is... When life doesn't work out, and we have, we've been doing behavior that was invisible to us, that was sabotaging us, so we're the ones that didn't see that we were conflicting with our own lives. And what does that mean for the individual who says, I wanted to be healthy, I wanted to have a great relationship. It's not working. The universe is against me. It's not in my fate to have success. 
it's not me. It's uh, it's outside forces that are, you know, taking me off my destination. And it turns out, oh my God, we bought into victims that our lives don't go the way that we wanted them to go because of outside forces. When the new science says, oh my goodness, shine a light on it. It was your own subconscious beliefs that you were engaging 95% of the time that you didn't see that were sabotaging you. The universe is fully there to support your destination. It's your own programming, invisible programming, that causes the illness, the cancer, the diabetes, the cardiovascular disease. Only 1% of diseases related to genetics. The rest of it is lifestyle. And then I say, well, whose lifestyle? I say, not your conscious mind, the one with wishes and desires. 95% of your life's not coming from that. It's coming from the programs. And now all of a sudden you say, oh, my God, I've been sabotaging myself. <laughs> and by changing the program, I re-empower myself. And I can manifest the wishes and desires of my life. Once I become aware of that, it was the invisible program that sabotaged me, not nature, not God, not the universe. And all of a sudden it says, you want to change your life? Then go and change your program. And you can do that. And when you do that, you become the sole source of your destiny. Yes. Well, well you know, I'm, I was really curious. Have you found, uh, since when did the book, well, at least I read it in 2008, maybe you wrote it way before then, uh, but have you found some uh, ways that uh, you recommend today that may be different for how we can retrain or reprogram our subconscious minds? Oh, absolutely. See, here's the first thing. As I said, the biggest error was that we put the conscious and subconscious together, and the belief is that if I educate the conscious mind, read a self-help book, listen to this program, go to a lecture, uh, conscious mind being creative learns in so many different easy ways. All I even have to go is, aha, I have an idea. Conscious mind is now creative and making that. And I go, well... That creativity, does that because I've read the book and I found out, oh, this is what I was doing wrong in my life. Now my conscious mind is totally aware, oh my goodness, if I do this behavior, as the book says, I should have a great life. I read the self-help book. I know I understand it. Why? If I give you a quiz, you'll get a 100 on the question. And then you say, but how come if I read the self-help book, my life didn't change? And I go, ah, because the subconscious mind does not learn from that process. And all of a sudden it says, oh. I can educate the conscious mind, but never touch the programming the subconscious. I go, that's almost always what happens, because they don't learn in the same way. Conscious mind being creative, as I said, any, just read a book, watch a TV, uh, listen to somebody, boom, conscious mind can learn. Subconscious mind learns in four fundamental ways. Number one. The first way programs got into subconscious mind was hypnosis. That was the theta brain activity between last trimester of pregnancy and the first seven years of life. Uh, that your mind was in hypnosis. That's how you downloaded hypnosis. Okay, that was easy because it bypasses consciousness and goes straight into program. So I said, okay, but after seven, you still learn habits and things. I said, well, how how'd you learn after seven? Because it wasn't hypnosis. And I go, oh, after seven, the subconscious learns by repetition practice, repeating over and over again. How many times did you have to say the alphabet before you can get from A to Z without making a mistake? How many times did you have to do the times table before you could get the answers without thinking about it? How'd you get them? You repeated it and repeated it, and all of a sudden you can get recalled instantly because of habit. So I say, okay, first two ways of learning are the principal normal ways, hypnosis A and repetition B. 
So reading a self-help book once, by definition, doesn't conform to hypnosis or repetition. That's why you can educate the conscious mind. The subconscious mind will still keep the exact same programs you had before you read the book because it's not an effective. Now, there are two additional ways that, uh, that you can rewrite the subconscious program. One of them you actually have no control over at all, and that is a shock to the system. If you come into a, a narrow escape with your life, an accident, uh, or a shock that you just heard that you have terminal cancer, or something that's like, oh, that shock is enough just once, depending on how threatening it is, to cause a rewrite of the program. But you can't control that. I can't say, okay, let me shock you with this statement. That's not going to necessarily do anything. So it happens, but not controllable. Now, the one that is controllable and the one you can do something about and the one that's the most exciting is the one that you're involved with, and that is these new modalities called um, belief change modalities, or some of them are called energy psychology. And these are new principal ways of uh, acquiring uh, a character called super learning. And super learning is the ability to download information virtually instantaneously into the subconscious. Uh, maybe you've seen uh, people who are, have acquired super learning when they read a book, for example. They can move their finger down the page, straight down the middle of the page, and they read the book as fast as the finger sweeps down the page. And that's why they can stand in the bookstore and go through about ten chapters, <laughs> just moving their fingers up and down, and they learned it. The, uh, the, the fact that's very critical in this is that if I can engage a super learning process, uh, and use it to change my beliefs, then I can change my belief in minutes. And that's the exciting part about these new uh, modalities that you're engaged with. Uh, and, in fact, I have a number of them listed on my website, brucelipton.com, very simple, brucelipton.com. Under resources, i got 20 or 30 different uh, uh, specialized techniques that are very similar to some degree that can uh, be used to reprogram using a super learning technique to download programs in minutes. And this is uh, almost the, the uh, it's, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And in the world that we're facing today with the upheaval and, and the crises that we're facing, we have a great necessity uh, to change our behavior. And so thank goodness uh, we've invented these new psychology modalities that can rapidly change beliefs. But you have to remember, most people think, how do they change their, they believe they change their subconscious? Well, they read a self-help book and it says, well, I should, oh, I see, I should uh, do this. So my conscious mind says I should do this. Then I go, yeah, but your conscious mind's only working 5% of the time, so 95% of the day you still default to the old program. Even if the conscious mind has a great desire and wish to change, it's not going to do it. And I say, well, to change that, then the whole idea was this. It's great to read the self-help book, but then the next step is to use the uh, reprogramming technique Absolutely. and change the subconscious. Yep, yes, sir. Go ahead, Maria. Yeah, we, we have about six minutes left in the <gasps> show, and I, I just wanted to make sure that, uh, well, first of all, you know, it's fascinating information. You all want to go to Bruce Lipton. It's just, yeah, it is brucelipton.com. And I, I highly recommend reading all of the books. I, I'm a big fan of the biology of belief. And, and here's the, one of the points I think I'm getting out of this show and, and from listening to you, Bruce, or maybe I should start with a quick question. You know, um, Many of us, part of, you talk a lot about stress in the book, and I know we don't have time to get really into that, and it's a fascinating discussion to say all that stress does to our brains, our bodies, and and how it stops this, you know, it inhibits our growth in many, many ways. But when we get messages, and we have them all around us, this is just another stress factor, 
you know, the world is changing and it's all destroying and we got to change and we got to do this and we got to clean up and we can't pollute. I, I, I hear that message all over the place. And I, and I think it, it puts me more into a fight flight. I mean, not fight flight, but more like a fear response. And then it, it kind of pushes me away from the growth that I want to be doing. I mean, it's a double edged sword. You, you get the news, you hear about it. And then, so I think each of us being totally responsible for ourselves, we, it's up to us to manage our own physical, emotional, mental, spiritual environment. And so it's not like, don't be oblivious to the world. But when you hear hear these scary things, you do need time to go in and feel your feelings and stop and slow down and bring back your conscious choice. You are the one responsible for your own environment. And that's tricky, Bruce, when there's so much going on. Uh, absolutely. And, and, the, and there's a very interesting, just so I can touch on it, because the book called The Honeymoon Effect, which is also part of the collection, uh, represents something. How, how, how come our lives could be miserable just every day, like, oh, life sucks, and then we've got to go to work, and we blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, we meet this special person. And we fall in love. And I call that period immediately after falling in love the honeymoon period. And I go, what's different about it? And I go, no matter how much your life sucked, up to the moment you met this person, when you met this person, all of a sudden it was heaven on earth. Life was so beautiful. You couldn't wait to wake up the next day. You were healthier. You were happier. Life was unfolding in a beautiful way. And I go, well, wait. What was the difference from the day before you met this person and life sucked to the day after and it's heaven on earth? And I go... The thing that happened is that we became mindful, meaning when you first fall in love, you don't let your mind wander like we do on an everyday basis. Why? Because everything you were looking for is now in front of your face. This other person is there. And so why would you let your mind wander when you're experiencing what you want? So basically I said, oh, my God, the first time in your life that you didn't default to the subconscious negative program is I said, what happened? Without the program, you turned your wishes and desires into a manifestation of heaven on earth. That is the entire secret. It said, well, do you have to fall in love? And I said, no, you have to recognize that it was the program that caused the problem and that by becoming mindful at that moment, you stop defaulting and you become, you know, hands on the wheel driver of the vehicle. And when you did that, it turned into this great heaven on earth. So the first thing it shows you is you have that built into you right now. You could have heaven on earth if you just walked down the street and met this person. Boom. <laughs> you got it. I go, how'd you do it? You just became mindful. Meaning you stop defaulting to the program. And then I say, well, what is the, what is the consequence of that? You say, well, in every day we're being barraged by blah, 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 blah. And I go, yeah, but that's stimulus response. You have been programmed to take that stimulus and make this negative response by your development. I say, I'm what sorry. if you change the program so the same stimulus shows up? But it doesn't evoke that, that, that old response. And all of a sudden I say, ah, now you become the master because you're not being driven by a reflex anymore. You're being driven by your ability to change your interpretation. And therefore, <laughs> that is the key to the whole success is by rewriting that subconscious program that has that, you know, uh, like tap the knee, kick the leg. That's a reflex. It doesn't even come up into the mind. It's just a reflex. If I turn on the TV and I say, oh, my God, economic crisis, oh, my God, war crisis, oh, my God, climate change crisis, every one of those is, is like sticking a needle in me, causing my leg to jump, because I'm not thinking about it. I'm just reflexively responding to the stimulus response. I'm the person that can change, so the stimulus comes in, I don't have to make the response when you know, I Bruce, program uh, that. <laughs> yes. I only have, uh, what do we have, 30 seconds or something? No, 
<laughs> and I, I didn't have a chance to really uh, close properly, but what I will say for all of you, please do look at his books. I know there is a lot of excitement here, so many topics that we didn't get to. But, you know, if you can't fall in love or you've already fallen in love in a while a while ago and you still need to get that love response, this is why I help people to focus on their higher selves because that downloads white light and love every morning that you focus on your higher self within. That's another way to go. Bruce, thank you so much for being on our show today. I'm sorry it went so fast that we didn't oh, have I'm more so time sorry, to talk. Marie, maybe sometime we'll have a future one. We'll expand on any of those particular topics. You know, uh, <laughs> that would be wonderful. Yes, and we'll, we'll stay on for just a moment after we close. I'd love to talk with you, but for all of you out there, for all of you unsung heroes, I know if you get, uh, if you look at Bruce's website, you get the books, you'll see how exciting this positive future really is. And there really are wonderful, uh, ways to reprogram that subconscious mind that are out there. I, I do NET, Psyche, and, uh, EFT myself, as well as a lot of meditation. But many of you will, and for those of you next week, we will be, uh, we, we will be, I will be be back to channeling you can call in for answers there so for all of you unsung heroes that listen each week and any whatever time you're listening to this show i want to thank you for being here it's always a pleasure and a real honor for me to support all of you as you do your work as you're helping to evolve the planet and making a better future for all of us thank you until next week goodbye Thank you for tuning in this week for Legendary Leaders. Maria Danley invites you to join her for another inspiring show next Tuesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Have a wonderful week.